welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Philip and Barclays Bank UK PLC. The citation for this case is 2023 UKSC 25. Now, before we begin this episode, I would like to dedicate it to someone who was kind enough to leave a five-star review of the podcast on iTunes. A person with the username Kirsten Piggy described the podcast as wonderful, and I wanted to say thank you. It really means a lot to get such positive feedback, and your reviews help others to find the podcast as well. Anyway, let's get to the proceedings before us today, and the facts around this case are fairly simple. Mr. and Mrs. Philip fell victim to a fraud. They were deceived by criminals into instructing their bank, Barclays, to transfer £700,000 in two payments from Mrs. Philip's current account to bank accounts in the United Arab Emirates. Those instructions were carried out, and the money was consequentially lost. In this claim, Mrs. Philip is simply claiming that the bank is responsible for the loss. She argues that under her contract with the bank, or under common law, the bank owed her a duty to not carry out her payment instructions if, as is alleged here, the bank had reasonable grounds for believing that she was being defrauded. Meanwhile, the bank's argument strikes at the heart of that claim, and submits that it does not owe any such duty at all. The High Court agreed with that position and summarily dismissed the claim, but on appeal, the Court of Appeal accepted that, in principle, a bank does owe such a duty to its customers, and the case should proceed to trial. Barclays Bank disagreed, and so they appealed to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick things up. The justices began by noting that this is a specific type of fraud known as authorised push payment, because the victim is fraudulently induced to authorise their bank to make payments to an account controlled by the fraudster. The substance of the claim by Mrs Philip relies on two things, the contract she has with the bank and a purported common law duty that the bank has. The Supreme Court dealt with each of these in turn. Firstly, the contract between a bank and its customer is pretty well established at this point. There are some obligations implied into the contract by both common law and statute, which can amend the express agreement. It is certainly possible that the bank could agree, as part of the contract, to not carry out payment instructions if it believes, or has reasonable grounds to believe, that the customer has been tricked by a third party into authorising the payment but the Barclays contract does not contain any express term of this kind. Now, Mrs Philip argues that this should not matter because such a duty is either already implied into the contract by common law or should be implied into the contract by the Supreme Court as a natural extension of the law. The Supreme Court wasn't having this. They held that this suggestion from Philip was inconsistent with the ordinary obligations owed by a bank to its customer. So long as an account is in credit, if a bank is asked to carry out a payment, then it should fulfil that instruction. The bank in this situation is essentially the agent of the customer, and it has a strict duty to execute instructions in a prompt manner. Unless there is an express agreement to the contrary, the bank does not have to concern itself with the wisdom or risks of the payment decisions of its customers. From this point, we will move on to the second strand of Mrs. Phillips' argument, which relies on the very well-known case of Barclays Bank and Quince Care Limited from 1992. 
The Clint's Care Duty, as it has generally been understood over the years, means that a financial institution must protect its customer from itself in circumstances where the bank is on reasonable inquiry that there may be a risk of fraud on the account. In theory, this should suit Mrs. Phillip perfectly, as it describes her situation. However, the Supreme Court focused on the fact that Quince Care applies when a bank receives instruction from an agent of the customer to make a payment. It is in this situation that the bank owes the customer a duty to not carry out the instruction if it has reasonable grounds to believe that the agent is defrauding the customer by instead using the money for his or her own purpose. Thus, the legal principle from Quince Care line of cases is more that the agent has the authority to act on behalf of the customer, but does not have the authority to defraud the customer. As a result, if the bank chose to carry out the instruction when it has a reasonable belief that the agent is acting in a fraudulent manner, then it would be doing something that the customer has not actually authorised. This is the extent of the Quince Care duty, but in cases like this where there is no agent involved and the customer gives the instruction to the bank directly, there is no duty because the validity of the instruction is not in doubt. In fact, if the bank refused to execute the instruction, then that would be a breach of duty by the bank. I think that at first glance this can appear to be an especially harsh decision. Mrs Phillip lost a lot of money and will have hoped that her bank could have done more to save her from being defrauded. Absent that, she might have thought that the courts would step in based on a common understanding of the Quince Care duty. Despite all that, I think there is some further context to this case, which does make things a bit easier for Mrs Phillip and others in her position. For a start, she does have an alternative claim, that the bank failed to act promptly, by not recalling the payment quickly enough from the United Arab Emirates once notified of the fraud. The Supreme Court held that this aspect of her case should not have been summarily dismissed and can proceed to trial. Interestingly, there are also other claims going through the courts at the moment that are examining the circumstances when a victim can make a claim against a fraudster's bank. Furthermore, the Financial Services and Markets Act 2023 which only received royal assent about a month ago, contains in section 72 a mandatory reimbursement scheme, although that would not have been relevant here because it does not extend to international payments. To put it simply, while what happened to Mrs Phillip is very unfortunate, there are certainly other legal avenues available to her and also to other victims of fraud who find themselves in a similar position. Just looking at the facts of this case, you might be mistaken for thinking that the Supreme Court is giving a green light to fraudsters everywhere, but that is not the case. Instead, the core idea is that if a customer gives instructions to a bank, then the bank will normally be obliged to carry out those instructions, and given that banks do provide a service, I think that this is fair enough. If this limits the application of the Quince Care duty, then that is a small price to pay. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, if you do get a chance to leave a five-star review of the pod, then that is always appreciated. Unfortunately, I only see the written reviews on iTunes, so that is the only way that I can give a shout-out, but if you're like me and listen to podcasts through Spotify, then there is still an option to give the podcast five stars. 
So far there have been 68 reviews on Spotify, so if we get up to 69 then that would be nice. Anyway, I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!